Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. All right, today on the show, we have Brian C. Adams. He's the president and founder of Excelsior Capital, where he, spe he uh, spearheads the investor relations and capital markets arm of the firm. He's got 10 years experience in real estate, private equity, and uh, works with the firm on <clears throat> best practices, strategic real estate investing, et cetera. Prior to forming Excelsior Capital, he co-founded Preem Properties, uh, which was an institutional real estate equity sponsor. And in 2010, he started that and provided leadership and direction for that firm. Can't wait to dive into all of this, all things commercial real estate investing. Without further ado, Brian, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you jumping on. Um, I'd like to dig in a little bit. First of all, where, where are you based out of? Yeah, so I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay, perfect. I'm a New York guy originally, and then my wife is from here. So I've been down in Middle Tennessee about 15 years now. Gotcha. Yeah, I was in Nashville a couple of years ago for a conference and they, at the time, they couldn't build the hotels fast enough. I think um, yeah. I had to stay kind of way outside of town to even have something to rent. Um, so Nashville's an interesting city. We're in San Antonio, which is about an hour south of Austin, which is kind of often called a sister city to, to Nashville, right? Yeah. And uh, my, actually, my main acquisitions guy is from San Antonio. He's from Alamo Heights. So I've spent quite a bit of time down there. It's a great market. It's a place yeah. that we've actually looked to acquire some things in. So, Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's a good it's a good market, kind of an operator's market. You're not seeing the rent growth that some other markets have, but uh, slow and steady wins the race. Who's your who's your guy here in San Antonio? Oh, he's from there. He lives here. Uh, but he's, his name is Sam Peacock. His family's in the oil and gas business. Gotcha. Um, very good. Historically. Yeah. 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 Very good. So you've been in, been in Nashville for a while. Um, let, let's talk about your, your entry kind of into real estate and, and how that came about. Was this something that, that you went to school for, or was this a transition mid-career? What'd that look like for you? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a recovering attorney. So I, I went to law school and then married my wife and um, let's just kind of be very transparent about this. I was just wildly fortunate to marry into a family with <clears throat> means and resources that had experience in the private equity commercial real estate space. So really just kind of fell into it by um, circumstance considering my wife's family has a family office that's been in that world for a while. So I, I got the entrepreneurial bug, um, didn't want to continue to practice law and connected with my business partner, who is also a New York guy that married a Nashville girl. And we started the business about 10 years ago. So uh, just some fortunate luck, uh, honestly. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great, uh, that's a great inroads to the industry. Um, what type of projects were you guys targeting early on? Was it right into large multifamily retail, et cetera, or, or was there kind of a ramp up period? What did that look like for you guys? Yeah, we were doing a lot of urban infill, uh, small kind of value add opportunistic um, type of deals, just because at that period of time in Nashville, there was a lot of opportunity um, and pricing was, was reasonable. We were just coming out of the downturn. Nashville had not become kind of the sexy it city that it's become today. Sure. So we were doing a lot of that type of product and then I had a, not an epiphany, but went through kind of a process of understanding how to raise capital efficiently um, and really having a better sense of what my 
logical investor base wanted. And so we pivoted probably six, seven years ago into more of a core plus uh, commercial um, investment thesis. But uh, that's what we originally were doing was, was more the opportunistic development side. Yeah, that's, that seems to be kind of a common, um, common trajectory that we see a lot is, is starting out on, you know, maybe some of the, the rougher stuff and, and, and moving up to bigger and cleaner over time. Um, that makes sense. So what was it, what was it in terms of the capital raising? Cause I think a lot of this audience that might be listening to this now is either passive investors that, that want to invest in projects or existing sponsors or aspiring sponsors that are out there trying to raise capital for their projects. Could you touch on a couple of things that, um, that you were able to streamline and that were some aha moments from kind of a capital raising perspective? Sure. Um, and I think this is a really huge problem in the industry, frankly, is people go about the capital raising process in the exact reverse way that they should. So typically what happens is an aspiring sponsor, an entrepreneur, they've got this bright, shiny object and they want to tell the world about it and they want to raise capital around that bright, shiny object. The reality is um, you should probably go the other way. Sorry. And you should focus more on what your logical investor base wants and understand the pain points that they have and then go from there. So as opposed to kind of cramming a deal down their throats and saying, Hey, I think this is a really cool opportunity. You should look at it. You're much better off understanding the pain points that your investor base has and how you can solve those problems for them and then deliver a product and experience that matches those pain points and addresses the problems, you will have a much more efficient capital raise process soup to nuts. Yeah, that's a great insight. That's a great insight. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I see the same thing where people are chasing a deal, trying to put together a, a project and then uh, scrambling for capital um, sometimes as an, as an afterthought and, um, that's, yeah. that's, uh, that's a recipe for disaster in some cases. What are some of the pain points that you've seen in your investor base? And is, did you guys go, you know, create an avatar here? This is kind of what it looks like, or is it all shapes and sizes from an, for your investor base or how, you know, what, what are the pain points that you're seeing there in your investor base that you touched on? Yeah. So we really distill what we do down to three things and everyone in the company can tell you what we do in under a minute. Capital preservation, cash on cash yield and a quarterly coupon and then tax benefits of direct real estate ownership. Love it. So what I found was most investors that were individuals and family offices, which is kind of our core limited partnership world, the exposure they had to commercial real estate was usually a fund of funds or a position in a REIT or a one-off deal that a buddy brought to them but they had never really had the opportunity to invest in institutional style asset management um, with an individual uh, that would be able to afford them the opportunity to scale their position over time. And what they really wanted for the most part was passive income. They wanted a cash on cash yield. They would love to have it monthly. It's very difficult in my opinion, I think to do unless you have some real infrastructure. So we provide quarterly dividends. And then there's a lot of things on the tax side that are fairly simplistic and straightforward, but these are all taxable investors. And I think where people get caught up is they're looking at things on a gross return when they should be looking at things on an after tax net of fees basis. 
And so we do a lot on the tax side. I've got a controller internally who's a CPA with a, with a tax background for public accounting. And so we do everything that we can in terms of um, uh, using the cost segregation analysis, accelerated depreciation, uh, structuring the initial uh, dividends as a return of capital as opposed to uh, taxable income, including some other things. But those are, those are, I think, are the key components that my investor base wanted. And we were kind of initially, we weren't really giving them what they wanted. And once we pivoted towards really addressing the needs and the pain points they had, we we're able to scale up the business um, pretty dramatically. That's great. Thanks for the insight on that. I appreciate that. Um, the direct ownership model is, is pretty attractive for a lot of folks. And you're right in our experience, a lot of folks are kind of first time, even if they've been investing for a long time in a lot of different uh, a lot of different investment vehicles, they a lot of times may not have participated in a direct LP or, or you know, class A shares right in the LLC that's purchasing the property. And there's, there's huge benefits to that. Um, what is a, what does a typical deal look like? You know, if you were to find something that checked the boxes for you right now today in 2020 uh, and, and, and it was attractive enough to take down, what does that deal look like for you guys? Yeah, that's a really good question considering you know, I'm not sure when this will air, but we're early September, you know, hopefully coming out of this COVID period of time. Sure. We closed the deal in June, which was a lot of work um, and it was a journey. And we actually just went under contract on a new acquisition for the first time post COVID. And we'll use it as an example. This is an $11 million acquisition, Kansas City, Kansas, in a, in a killer submarket off-market deal being sold by a distressed seller who has liquidity issues. It's a CMBS assumption. So it's going to take a lot of brain damage, a lot of heartburn, <laughs> a lot of paperwork, and we're, we're happy to take it on. It's hundred percent occupied. It does have some traditional office users, but for the most part, it's more medical arts, medical office building style. So feel really good that it's an essential service that they're COVID resistant and actually probably will do very well during this period of time. Um, has a long weighted average lease term. You know, I think given everything going on in the marketplace today, at least in the office sector, trying to take down a value add deal or something with some near term role where you need to be able to lease it up or right size it, it's just going to be a real challenge. So we love the stability. We love the cash flow. We love the location. And so those are all the things that we're focused on. It's a little bit of a smaller deal for us. Uh, we would typically be more like 15, $20 million, but you know, considering all the volatility in the market, it's a good, nice, kind of straightforward, middle of the fairway type of deal. And the response has been very positive from our investor base so far, so. That's excellent, that's encouraging. Um, we're, we're closing our first post COVID deal Kind of right now as we speak as well and it's uh, it was well received and there was some there was some uh, question mark around that right you know we're going to launch a deal um we sold a couple of deals kind of you know since march and it was to your to your point a lot of brain damage but we got it done and we got our number uh so deals are still getting done it's just you know it's, it's an additional layer of complexity and and uh but there's always something in the deal there's always some level of complexity or some some unforeseen circumstance and that's um that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Yeah. Um, what does a capital stack look like on, on something like that for you guys? You mentioned the loan assumption. Um, and then is it just straight equity on top or is there a pref uh, component or a mezzanine component there? Yeah. So we only do common equity. Everyone's pair pursue. We don't do pref. We don't do mez. We only do senior debt. 
We try to keep it very straightforward and simple because frankly, I don't think investors understand for the most part what PREF equity is, what MEZ is, and it can get really complicated. And I tell people all the time, if you're working with institutional LPs, sure, they totally understand. They can appreciate where they are in the cap stack and what that risk reward is for them. But for individuals and families, um, you're going to spend a lot of that time on the pitch explaining what these things are and what they aren't and how it impacts them. And when you should be talking about the opportunity and the management team. So we've tried to really streamline things to keep them as simple as possible. Obviously deals get complicated, but that's how we typically approach them. Um, and we like to be in that 65 to 68 LTV range. We do a, mostly CMBS. So that's what we found to be kind of the sweet spot in terms of um, LTV that gives us the best interest only, the best rate, term, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. I, I love it. We, we've skewed over the years toward simpler. I mean, let's just make it simpler. It's, it's uh, you know, one lender, the rest is, is, it, is it the equity from investors and, and we invest in that same, you know, the same class A shares. But, you know, I need to be able to explain it in, in 30 seconds on a napkin. Otherwise, people's eyes glaze over and that's kind of it. Um, so I love that. I love that simple approach. Are you guys targeting, uh, you know, a forever hold with a refi in there or what's, what's kind of the strategy with these, uh, with these projects? Yeah, we're typically trying to get a 10 year hold and we're very transparent and very conservative on our underwriting and we tell people that, Hey, this is e-liquid. This is going to be a cash flow income oriented play. We're not out there trying to get a big IRR or a big multiple, this is really a place where you can get a nice quarterly distribution and coupon. That being said, most of the leases that were um, in these properties are typically five to seven years. Right. So the best time to sell them obviously is when you renew that user or you backfill them. And that usually comes out to a six to seven year type of play. But, you know, we model everything on a 10 year hold. We do 10 year fixed debt, et cetera. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. What markets are you guys, uh, are you guys interested in? Is it, is it pretty broad or you got a handful of favorites? How does that look for you guys? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I like not having a fund is I can change my mandate per deal and kind of move with where the, where the wind is going. Sure. So today we have about two and a half million square feet under management. We're in 12 markets total and we've had to consistently rotate out of certain markets. So we've been in places like Nashville, sold everything, but in Tampa, Raleigh, um, Columbus, Ohio, which is now kind of a high profile market. So today we're very active in Kansas City. We're looking at San Antonio, got something in Cincinnati. Um, so those are probably the top three markets. I think interior Midwest with Chicago imploding will do very well. And I think, you know, tax advantageous states in, along the Sun Belt obviously are gonna experience just continued population growth. So any asset class in commercial real estate should benefit from that. Right. Yeah. It's interesting what we're seeing in some of those markets where there's kind of a, kind of a mass exodus. Um, I'm curious, just kind of, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, where you are, Austin and San Antonio are really becoming one Metroplex. Right. It really is bleeding together. I see it every time I drive up 35. Like New Braunfels. I mean, I think it's one of the fastest growing markets in America. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. And it's just kind of bleeding into one uh, Metroplex. Like you said, I'm curious, you know, since you're from New York, um, I mean, this, this is maybe off the, off the path a little bit, but what, what's happening in New York city right now? I mean, I'm sure you've got connections there and, and I hear different things. You never know quite what to believe, but I, I'd be interested yeah. in your take on 
the COVID impact on uh, New York City? Yeah, so I'll set the record. I'm from upstate New York. My okay. partner's from Got Long Island. Got it. We, still, we, have, we certainly have a lot of friends and family in the city. My godfather lives there. My folks still live in upstate. I went to college in Connecticut, so I've got a lot of friends in that kind of New York metro area. Um, but it, it's a bad scene. Uh, I, you know, would tell you New York is the greatest city in the world and always will be. But in the next five or 10 years, there's going to be a huge amount of pain there because the only option they have is to raise taxes and decrease services. And by doing that, their tax base is going to leave which means they will have to increase taxes on everybody else and decrease more services until the city becomes more affordable so that young people can move there, be entrepreneurs, build up their you know, wealth over time. So I think it's gonna be a five or 10 year journey, but you know, the city's exhausted their emergency funds. Um, transit authority is broke. Um, I think de Blasio is not gonna win a reelection Cuomo has his sights set on probably a national stage on some level and doesn't want to have to deal with this fallout, which I don't blame him. Sure. So they've managed COVID well, but they're in for a ton of pain. And when you see a place like San Francisco having the same issues, trying to raise the personal income tax from 13 to 16% and have it be retroactive on people, those are kind of things that you find out pretty quickly that affluent people are mobile and where they go, business will go with them. So um, I think it's going to be a very tough road to hoe for them. No doubt. I appreciate the context and the color on that. Um, it's just, it's just amazing. One of, one of many, many amazing things, incredible things happening this year, but uh, um, I guess you guys don't have any holdings up there in, in the city, right? Lord, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and if you talk, if you hear a guy like Barry Sternlich who runs Starwood, you know, I think he owns, Gosh, I don't know, I'm not going to get this number right, but he owns a lot of real estate, obviously. Sure. He only has one asset that's in a market that is coastal and democratically held politically. That's it. Out of the whole holding. So I think it's going to be really challenging and they're going to have to raise taxes on property owners. I mean, Nashville, we don't have a state income tax in Tennessee. I don't think we ever will. But Nashville just raised the property taxes 30%. Right. That's incredible. So, you know, at some point you're going to kill the golden goose and you just got to be really careful there. And it'll be really interesting to see, you know, Texas, I think, is in play to become, um, you know, a Democratic leaning state here in the next five or 10 years. Right. And it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out on the state level, considering all this massive growth they've had over the last 20 years. That's right. Yeah, it will be interesting. It's... Um... It's, it's a, it's quite a, quite a situation. We're seeing, you know, we bank on, on uh, the population growth and it's does great for our assets that are here, but there's uh, uh, it's, it's always kind of a double-sided uh, coin there to, to deal with uh, changing policies and so forth. We're the same here on the state income tax, obviously, as you know, but taxes, property tax has been a battle last couple of years for, for sure. I think maybe we got a little relief this year with COVID, but um, it's the, it's the number one line item on your, on your uh, PL and yeah. it's uh, it's going up, so we've got to find ways ways around it. I wanted to get back to to kind of your your asset management approach, uh, being in you know a dozen or so markets, being flexible. How are you guys handling the property management aspect? And if it's if it's um, 
the type of tenant you were describing on the cur this current acquisition, right? We've got medical, long-term leases, et cetera. Maybe the property management is very different than say a hundred unit apartment complex, but what is your firm's approach to, to handling property management? Yeah, so we third party sure. to local partners like the JLLs and the Cushmans and the CBREs of the world for property management and leasing. Yep. Um, so we kind of have a trusted partner in these markets. It is a challenge though. I mean, some of these places, even though they are large MSAs, you only probably have two, three, maybe four shops that have the ability to run the asset the way that we want them to, frankly. Right. And so um, you run a bake-off every time that you do one of these deals, but you know, you've got to be very cautious because if you fire one, you know, you probably only have two other options in the marketplace and you can't just keep getting, you know, divorced and married over and over again. Sure. That being said, in my world for office, um, being internally vertically integrated for property management, I think is a bit of a challenge because you know, we just don't have the scale necessarily in the, in the marketplace right. and there's not necessarily something to do every day. So for us, it's more about, we would much rather keep the current tenants that we like in the building, renew them, maybe not get the max out on rent rate that we could if we were to do a, a fully marketed process, but we just want to keep that stability and cash flow moving. So that's the ultimate goal for us. And we've increasingly gotten more deal flow from leasing brokers. And mm -hmm. you kind of say, well, if, if we buy this property, you know, we're going to run a process, but we're very likely to keep you if you're doing a good job on the leasing or, Hey, this property is in play. If you bring it to us off market, we'll give you the leasing work because in a lot of these MSAs, leasing brokers typically 70 to 80% of their, um, of their take home pay is uh, leasing work as opposed to you know, investment sales. And so yeah. it's very meaningful for them. Sure, yeah, if they've got the lion's share of their, of their take home just from day to day activity and they can get a nice commission on a, on a big deal, that's, uh, that's a big deal for them that year, no doubt. Mm -hmm. I like that, that lets them get, them get their feet in the door and um, start building a relationship and they've got- And we always invite them to invest as well. Right. You know, the, C the CBREs of the world aren't gonna let them, but a smaller shop um, or maybe older folks that have a, a, a carve out, um, we don't always, they, they can't always participate, but we always invite them. Right, yeah, that's, that's great. That's a, that's a good, uh, good partnership set up there. Um, well, so what is, well, how has your strategy changed this year? Um, I, you know, I'm always interested to talk to operators and investors. Um, you know, March was this uh, big, big turning point for everybody um, <clears throat> in, in commercial real estate. What's your outlook? We're, we're probably released this, you know, September, 2020. So this isn't going to come out six months from now, but, uh, or, or after the election or anything, but how has your approach changed this year? And, and, and what do you, what do you guys see for, uh, kind of the next, uh, foreseeable future here as far as your strategy? Yeah. We continue to be very bullish on suburban office, um, in these secondary markets. So if you see what's happening, you know, in some of these large coastal metros, uh, I think the, the death of office narrative is way overblown. I think increasingly as we're moving through this period of time and schools are opening up or you're homeschooling your children like I am, consistently across the board, I'm hearing from people that they're experiencing burnout, corporate cultural decay, and just uh, an appetite to have more exposure to human to human contact. Um, 
I think creativity is down. Um, so I think there's still a place for the office, but I do think it will change, right? Pre-COVID, 4% of the workforce worked remotely. Clearly in a post-COVID world, that number is going to go up. That being said, I know you've seen this with, I think it was not Instagram, but Pinterest maybe. They broke their lease in San Francisco. Sure. Um, Cost them a free penny. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're going to continue to see is operators, employers, and corporate um, entities will really reconsider how much they're spending on tenant improvement dollars, leasing commissions, and just their overhead in general with their fixed cost of leasing. So when you take all that into account, you know, suburban office in some of these markets, much more affordable. Uh, you can put more density in there without having people crammed into <clears throat> kind of a WeWork style model where there's this massive density. And also you can park it. It has that parking ratio, which is really important because most of these markets, you know, San Antonio is a great example. They have really no mass transit options. And so they are car centric markets. And if you're going to move there and relocate large workforce, you need to be able to park it. And so we've seen clearly Q1, Q2, new leases and lease renewals were very slow. But we're starting to see things pick up and you're starting to see more corporate relocations. And I think it's really important to draw a distinction between work from home and work remote. I think working from home permanently is just not really an option for most of the employers in the, in the world. Remote working where two or three days a week, you maybe are flexible with where you're uh, conducting your business makes a lot of sense, but you're gonna distribute that workforce across multiple secondary markets. Um, so if you actually read what Facebook and Twitter is saying, it's not work from home. It's just, we're not gonna pay for San Francisco rent any longer. Um, and so there's a big differentiation there. That's great input and I appreciate the color there. Uh, I, I tend to agree that um, just because people can work from home and, and make it work with kids in the other room and, you know, all this stuff, just because people can do it doesn't mean that's the new normal. I think people are going to get back to the office as quick as possible. I think we had a couple of work from home days when this started and I said, team's going back to the office. It's just night and day in terms of productivity, in terms of focus. Um, yeah. That's been our, I think that's, yeah, I totally agree. I think that spike of productivity that you saw Q1, Q2 was more out of novelty and fear that everyone's going to get fired, sure. but we've really seen it tail off and we've started coming to the office probably three days a week. I, I've got some childcare that I need to handle. So it's a little bit different, but yeah, I completely agree. We've experienced the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I appreciate the feedback that, that maybe all this is overblown. Like a lot of, uh, you know, like a lot of news, it's, it's an overreaction uh, a lot of the time. So I appreciate your feedback on that. Uh, this has been great, Brian. I really appreciate some of the detail, you know, especially you guys are in kind of a different space than us. I always enjoy learning. <clears throat> I think this has been, been great and helpful to uh, some of our audience as well. If somebody wants to reach out, connect with you and kind of get in your universe, what's a, what's a good avenue for that? Yeah, you can check out the website, excelsiorgp.com. And then I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you connect with me, Brian C. Adams, uh, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a message and I'll carve out some time to talk to you and you can ask me anything you want. Um, so feel free to reach out. I'd love to talk to you. Excellent. Well, Brian, we'll include that in the show notes. Uh, really appreciate you jumping on today. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Appreciate you having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.